The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 83 of The Things We All Carry. If you followed and listened to past episodes, you'll recognize Adam from episodes 17 and 18. Adam was, and is once again, a firefighter in my department. He had his own issues with trauma, alcohol, and recovery. I got a text from him one day asking if I was still looking for guests to come on the show, and if I was, he had a good one for me. As usual, I'm always looking for guests. So Adam sent a name and a number, and before I could even thank him, my phone dinged with a notification. Turns out David was much faster to reach out than I was. David is a retired firefighter medic from the Pacific Northwest. He spent 28 years on the job between volunteer time and career. His story is one filled with trauma on the job to include numerous pediatric codes and death. Those traumas led him to anger, to drinking, to rehab, and eventually to recovery. Today, David is retired and he's retrained as a welder. He makes his recovery the priority in his life, knowing without sobriety, nothing else would be possible. David and I spent two plus hours talking about life, recovery, and life after the fire service. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. No. So uh, let's, have, let's have our conversation. Let's do it that way. Okay. Okay. Welcome back to the things we all carry. This morning I have David with me. He's out of Washington State, and uh, he's joining me from his home this morning. And it's a little early there for for him. Well, I'd say it's a little early, but he's used to getting up early. He said already. So it's about eight a.m. for him this morning. Uh, he was a firefighter medic for just over twenty-eight years. He retired two years ago, correct, David? About two or three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. How's retirement finding you? Oh, it's been a, it's been a good ride. Um, I'm busier now than I ever have been. <laughs> I, I think, I think we'll get into the reason why you're busier, right? And as we tell yeah. your story a little bit, um, before I go much further, I, I've been in this habit of asking people about music and the reason I'm doing it is because music's a big part of my life. I, I hardly go anywhere without music going in, in the background. Um, what's the last song you listened to? Oh, you know, I, I hate to jump on the bandwagon, but, uh, rich men in Richmond, okay. by, uh, Oliver Anthony. Yeah. 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 It's a, I mean, it's quite a statement. And it, I mean, obviously um, it's, it's all the buzz, I guess, probably until now that Zach Bryan's new album came out and, and he's going to dominate the charts off of that. But, um, oh yeah. Yeah. He, um, he lives in the town that my daughter lives in actually down in Southwestern Virginia. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's a it's it's a small little place, and it's definitely a place you can get off the grid, and that's that's apparently what he's done is just gotten off the grid and, and is trying to live his own life. And yeah, I think, yeah, seems I think, like it. I think that might be out the window now that he's apparently done Rogan. So, yeah, yeah, I saw, I watched a uh, clip of that last night. Yeah. Kind of kind of hard to to fly under the radar once you do the Rogan show. Absolutely, trust yeah. me. This this one won't have that effect on your life. Trust me. Okay, good. <laughs> so why don't you tell me a little about little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up? 
Um, well, I was born in Reno, Nevada. And, uh, um, oh, I think when I was about five, I moved up to, uh, the Northwest and to, uh, Oregon, um, into, uh, Oregon city uh, with, uh, with my mom and, uh, yeah, my mom and dad, um, my dad at that time, uh, he was a long haul truck driver. So I, I, as I recall, he was, he was gone a lot. Um, and then we, we kind of lived around in that area, the Oregon city, Westland area outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, got for pretty much, uh, you know, the rest of my young life anyway, at least until my, my twenties. Um, and then I would spend most summers going back to Reno, um, staying in the summer with my grandparents. I, I went to school there for a, a little while in junior high, but. Yeah, I mostly grew up in the Northwest. And you you said mom and dad moved to moved you to Oregon City. Did, were mom and dad married throughout your childhood? Yeah, so I was adopted by my dad. Um, I, I didn't know my biological father. Okay. Uh, and then, um, yeah, my 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 parents were together until I think I was about. And, oh, about 19 or 20 and they got divorced. Okay. And, yeah. So the, I'm, I don't want to minimize, but, but it kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't have as big an effect or, or does it at that age? You know, um, I, I think being older and, um, you know, honestly, I was just, I was used to, to my dad not being around a whole lot it, anyway. Oh, cause uh, yeah, the long haul trucker thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then even when he, even when he stopped doing that, um, you know, he, he did jobs that, that where he'd be on call and be gone a lot of the time. So, um, you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden he was there every day and then, and then gone the next. So. What was, what was school like for you? Were you a good student? Did you enjoy school? Was it, what was it? What, what was that upbringing like? Uh, when I was, when we moved to the Northwest, um, we, we lived kind of like right on the edge of the, the county line and, and then right next to, um, a city in an area that was pretty affluent. Um, and we were not <laughs> by any means. And, um, I ended up, uh, uh going to school. Um, I ended up going to school, uh, in a, in a K through 12 school and, uh, you know, small school, but for the most part, most of the kids that went there came from, you know, pretty affluent background and, uh, you know, we did, we didn't have a lot of money and, uh, and, and I was, uh, definitely, I didn't fit in, um, you know, I wore cowboy boots and, and. Western shirts and a big old straw cowboy hat. And that, that was definitely not the style. Um, and, and at the time, uh, I started when I was a little kid, I started training martial arts and, and, um, I don't think that the place where I went, maybe, uh, didn't have the best hygiene because I ended up getting like my hands and my feet were just covered in warts. I mean, absolutely covered. And, uh, and then I started developing acne at a really early age, like pretty severe acne. 
So I was the poor kid, didn't dress like anybody else. Um, my mom cut my hair. I had acne warts all over, you know, so you so, can imagine how well I fit. Yeah, that was, that was that obviously wasn't the easiest time to get through school, correct? No, no. And then, uh, but, I, but you know, I, I was always like, the, I was always kind of a clown and, and, and uh, always trying to make people laugh and got myself in trouble quite a bit with the teachers that are like uh, doing that. And then, uh, um, then when I was in junior high, like probably right about the best time that it could have happened, um, I, my mom got a, a, a good job and we, we ended up kind of moving up a couple of notches in class. And then I, you know, all of a sudden now I'm getting my hair cut at the salon and, and, uh, I've got nice clothes and, and, uh, my, my warts are pretty well gone and the acne is getting under control, you know, and, and, uh, um, and, and I, I was on the track and cross country team, you know, so I made, I made friends that way. And, and, and by the time I got into high school, I, I, I had pretty well kind of come into myself and got along pretty well with, I had a lot of uh, diverse group of friends. Now, do you stay in that same school, that K through 12 all the way through? No, no. Um, by the adults, junior high, I, I, we kind of moved around to hopped around a little bit, seventh, eighth grade, eighth grade, I actually went to school in Reno, uh, again, where I did not fit in at all. Um, I thought that, uh, you going down there to kind of a bigger city, um, over the previous summer, I'd seen a lot of kids that were like really into break dancing and stuff. And I thought that that was like the thing. So when my grandma took me school clothes shopping, I bought like all the parachute pants and the freaking, the, like the, the cutoff, the, like the tank top with the padded collar and stuff, you know, and, and, uh, um, that is not what the kids were wearing when I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> so I really stuck out, but, but I did, uh, you know, I did have some of the kids that were break dancers. They took me in and, and they gave me a break dancing name and, uh, oh, well, we got to hear that, man. Oh, aftershock. Aftershock. Okay. Aftershock. Yeah. <laughs> and I could not break dance at all, but I would get out there and just at least, you know, bob my head around and, and, you know, be one of the guys in the background. I was like the background singer. Well, you ended up with a good nickname at least. Oh yeah, absolutely. So what do you do after high school? Um, yeah, I really, I knew that I wanted to do something, um, to, I, I knew right away that I wanted to be doing something to serve the community. Um, initially I had a really big interest in law enforcement and, uh, we had had some good, uh, close family friends growing up that were police officers and they had a big influence on me. And I, and I really thought that's what I wanted to do. And I, and I started kind of going down that direction. Um, started kind of looking at, you know, taking some classes at the community college and, and looking at getting my, uh, my degree. And I was talking to, uh, one of the officers that I'd gotten to be friends with and, 
about that. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's a good career. And, and, uh, you know, they have, a, they have a really good program here at their, at their local college and yep, highly recommend it. And he said, you know, one thing that I would encourage you to do is to find a way to serve your community, you know, find a, find a way where you can volunteer within the community and, and show that you're, that you're really involved in, in community service. It's really gonna, you know, go a long way towards hoping you get a job in the future. So I had, I had a buddy that, uh, he was a volunteer with the, the fire district. And, uh, I thought, you know, that, that'd be kind of a neat way to do some community service. And yep. so I, uh, got a hold of him and, and he handed me our application and he's like, it was, it was, it was like a Thursday. And he goes, Hey, would you know, they're, they're, the, the department's taking applications. Um, they're due tomorrow and they're doing interviews over the weekend. And, uh, I was like, okay. So I filled out the application, ran it down to the, to the training center and, and, uh, dropped the, dropped off my application. They called me back later that day and like, Hey, can you come in on Saturday? If we're doing interviews. And I, I had no idea what to expect. I had, I had zero background. I knew nothing about the, the fire service other than what I saw on TV. And, uh, or in the, in the, the, the agency where I started volunteering, it was a, it's a big agency. It's one of the biggest fire districts in, in the state of Oregon. And they're a combination department, but they, you know, they, they, they run their volunteer program the same way they run their paid, you know, same kind of, uh, you know, physical agility tests, multiple different oral boards and background check and big medical, physical and screening and stuff. And, and, uh, went through that. And, and then the next thing I know, it was, uh, you know, going into the recruit academy and, uh, it was a three month long academy and, and, uh, and I got out there my first day still having, I mean, I'm just kind of like, like it was this whirlwind. I had no idea what was going on. Really. I just kind of was going along for the ride. And after that first day, oh man, I was like, this is it. This is definitely where I want to be. And, uh, and yeah, I got out of the recruit academy when I turned just after I turned 21 and, uh, and that was it. My, my trajectory had been set. What year was that? Uh, 1993. Okay. So 93, you pick, you, you go through the academy, you go into the volunteer side of, of the business, correct? Mm -hmm. And how, how many years do you spend as a volunteer? Uh, I was a volunteer there for, gosh, seven years, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. Okay. So just about till 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Right about there. And then, uh, and then I started, uh, um, and, and I had gotten, uh, a job previous to that, um, working in, uh, working in Portland on the, on a medic unit. And, uh, um, you know, got my EMT and got my paramedic and, and, uh, um, started, started working, uh, in the field then, and, um, you know, it's like right around 95 and, uh, um, 
had an opportunity to come out and work a summer out on the coast, out on the Washington coast. And uh, I had a, a buddy that worked out, out here and, and he's like, man, that, you know, this, this is a great place to come out and work during the summer. It's a lot of fun. It's, you know, a lot of good calls and good, good people, good agency. And, and, uh, you know, they, they just, they need someone to come out and, you know, help out during the summer. So I thought, you know, I'll give that a try. And, um, it's kind of a smaller agency, more, more of a rural department that, uh, that transported. And, uh, that was what I, I was kind of looking for. Uh, I like being a medic. I like being a medic a lot, but when I, I noticed that, you know, working in the city, every call, I'd be one of two or three, four or five other medics on every single call and being a new medic. Um, I just, man, I had to fight to be able to do anything. You know, all the, all the senior guys, all the senior folks, they, you know, they're like, you know, get out of the way kid. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time not really being able to do much, you know, every hospital's five, 10 minutes away. Um, you know, I just, it was high volume, but, but, uh, didn't really get a chance to use you know, my skills. And, uh, I came out here and all of a sudden I might be the, I might be the only medic in the county, you know, on, on, uh, if we had multiple calls going, I, and I, and I could be the only person on a call for 20, 30 minutes, you know, just, uh, I, I went from working in an environment where all you had all the resources you could possibly need, anything you needed, you know, any fire, any, you call another alarm, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get everything you need going to get uh, all the resources going to be right there within, you know, minutes and out here, it's like, you've got to do everything and you may not get the help you need for a long time. You got to be very, very, very self-sufficient. Uh, so so you kind of, you kind of thrive off of that though, but it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, when you talk about it, you can feel it. You can, that's exactly what you wanted. Oh yeah. So I, 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 uh, I was like, yeah, this is it. This is, this is, this is what I want. And, uh, um, so I've been, been working out here on the, on the Washington coast or, you know, I worked out on the Washington coast for over 20 years and, and, uh, yeah, just, it's a good place to be. So it's not all roses, obviously. I mean, there's a reason why you're here to talk. And, and yeah. you know, when, yeah. when you and I spoke about it, we, I mean, we had a conversation a while ago and, and, and I think we went on about two hours that we, that we spoke. Yeah. And, uh, I th you kind of picked up around the 2003 timeframe with, with some mm -hmm. significant calls and, and, yeah. and that's where you kind of, I don't know if it started for you there, but that's where you were, that's where it was significant at least. Yeah. You know, prior to that, I had, had, uh, you know, definitely had been on a, quite a few calls by that time, you know, I'm working in, in the, in the urban area, um, had high volume of calls and definitely had seen a lot. The, it, the agency that I worked for at that time was very progressive, you know, um, on one hand, the, 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 the crews, 
we still had a lot, you know, all that, that mentality of, uh, you know, I was brought up by guys that had been on the job for 20, 30 years, you know, in, in the seventies, eighties and in early nineties. And the you know, mentality was very much like, Hey, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, you know, you know, there's always truck driving school. It was always kind of the thing that we could say, you know, nothing against truck drivers. I know it's a, not, a, you know, it's not an easy job, but that was kind of the thing. It's like, Hey, you know, we know you can drive a truck. So if this isn't cut, you know, you can't cut it here. then, then you can always go and, you know, use that skill to do that. Um, but the leadership was always really good about like, if we had any call that, that was, that was a, any high level of intensity, the leadership would come down and be like, Hey, you know, make sure you guys are okay. This was kind of, this was before like the crit critical incident stress debriefing teams, things like that, you know, but the, you know, you might get a battalion chief or a supervisor just to check on everybody. And you just knew that you had support. And, um, so it didn't really, it wasn't that challenging. And, and you know, at that time I didn't have kids and, and, uh, it was different, but right, right around 2003, um, I, I was on duty, got, a got a call for, um, I think, a you know, baby that wasn't breathing and, uh, so as I recall, it, like, and I had, had I, I had been on some pediatric codes prior to that, but, um, again, it was like, yeah, I'm one of like half a dozen people on this call and, uh, certainly not the only medic, but, uh, you know, I, we go to this call, show up to this house and I, and, uh, this woman comes out with a baby, little girl. It was clearly, you know, it's clearly unconscious, uh, blue, not, you know, clearly breathing. And, and I just, I remember getting that kind of tunnel vision, you know, she, she practically throws this baby at me and, and then I'm like, I grabbed this, grab this little girl and, and uh, you hold her, cradle her in my arms and start doing chest compressions and, you know, start doing CPR and run, you know, run to the medic unit and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm the medic, I'm the only medic and, uh, I, I don't, I didn't even have anybody that I could call to meet me halfway somewhere. Um, you know, I've got my, my partner, I think, uh, I think one of our, uh, one of our volunteers jumped in the back with me and, and off we go to the hospital and, and there and, uh, you know, the, the call's actually going well, um, as far as, you know, everything goes the way that it's supposed to. Um, I remember very, very clearly, um, seeing her on the gurney and how tiny she was on the gurney and she's this little, you know, She's less than a year old, little blonde haired baby. But I, I just, as I, as I got to the point where I went to innovate her, I had this sudden realization that she looked exactly like my daughter at that time. And, uh, and I just, I remember having this moment of like vertigo, like where I just kind of, I got a little bit 
like all of a sudden it just kind of felt like I was like maybe a little bit out of my body, sort of like an observer looking at this, you know, from third person perspective. And I, uh, and I, and I remember very clearly like praying and, and I, this is not something that I would normally do prior to this point, but I remember just, I remember praying like, okay, help me focus and please let me get this intubation. And I did, um, you know, like I said, tech, technically all of the skills that needed to, to happen to take care of her, um, you know, everything that could have been done for her was done. And we got to the hospital and same thing, it all, all went very well, like, you know, very much like clockwork. <clears throat> so she didn't survive here and then. But, and I, I, I had a hard time with that. I remember after kind of the dust settled, um, her mom came down to the hospital and, and, uh, she sat down on the ground in front of the medic unit and just, you know, she just, she broke down and, and I'm trying to do the best I can to comfort her and stuff and air and, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to hold it together. You know, everybody around me is there that is kind of falling apart and I'm trying to really hold it together and, and uh, yeah, I think I was waiting on some paperwork to come before I could get out of there. And so I, I kind of walked out away from everybody and, and, uh, called my, my ex and, and I just like, I had this, this overwhelming desire to just make sure that my daughter was okay. I just, I, all I wanted to do was just make, make sure that she was okay. Yeah. You know, I called, uh, called up her mom and, and didn't say anything, didn't tell her, you know, what was going on, but I just like, Hey, I just need to know, you know, make sure that, that she's okay. She's like, yeah, she's fine. What's going on? And it's like, I just nothing, you know, don't want to talk about it right now. I just need to make sure that she's all right. And, uh, so I, you know, that was early on and that would that was like, I, I think I still had another at least another, another half of my shift to go, you know, at least another 20 or 12 hours plus to go. And, and uh, I just remember feeling like I was just kind of floating through the rest of my shift. Like I wasn't quite in my body all the way. And, uh, there was a strange, strange feeling. And, uh, so I got, I, I didn't sleep that night. I don't think we had any calls the rest of the night, but uh, I didn't sleep, came home. It's very restless area. I, I could, I just, all I wanted to do was hold my daughter and just be left alone, you know? Um, you know, so a uh, little bit of time goes by and, and I'm, man, I'm the bear. I'm just, it was just like instant asshole hmm. for the next couple of weeks. I. I just had such a short temper. I almost got in, like, almost got into uh, fights. So uh, just out and about on my, on, on my days off, um, just being so on edge, being around people and and down. Uh, and then the coroner called and I, and she called and talked to the fire chief and the, and then he relayed the information onto me and I don't know why. She, she had to call because there was no 
point to what she was saying, there was no solution. She just called and said, Hey, I don't know whoever it was that innovated this, this baby, but they, uh, they missed the innovation. And, and then he came and told me that. And, and I was like, well, that, no, that is not true at all. That is absolutely not true. Uh, it was definitely, you know, a good intubation confirmed by, you know, multiple ways by me and the hospital, the x-rayer, everything. I mean, it was a good innovation. And the only thing I can think of is the two must have slipped out when they moved her after the, you know, we terminated all the uppers and stuff. But that was it. I mean, it's just like, and now I'm, now I'm starting to second guess myself. Like, I know that, it, that it was a solid innovation. You know, I know that it was, but maybe, maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it wasn't. Maybe, maybe I killed this kid, you know, and, uh, yeah, we just, uh, I didn't ever really fully recover from that. And I would just remember, I remember back for a long, long time, I was angry all the time. I just had this underlying anger, almost a rage that was just burning inside me all, all the time. And I, I had a hard time feeling that way. And I, I couldn't sleep. And, uh, so I started uh, drinking and I had always kind of got, I'd kind of gotten into like collecting and being like this craft beer sort of connoisseur. And, you know, uh, I, prior to this, I, I, I think that I could drink uh, a couple beers and, and be okay. But honestly, looking back, that's not the case. I mean, I was, I, I was definitely an alcoholic from the first drink that I ever took, but it, it was always just sort of, you know, under control for the most part, but I'd never had any hard alcohol really prior to that. So I know that that I, I would try and but go to bed and I would drink a, several beers take a bunch of Benadryl, take a hot bath, you know, I mean, I should have been just knocked out cold and I, I just couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep at all. And so I went to the liquor store one day and I didn't even know what to buy. I just asked the guys like, what, what am I supposed to, you know, have? And he's like, well, I, I drink, uh, I don't know, Yukon Jack, the, the peppermint stuff and I keep it in the freezer and I, and I put it in my, uh, hot chocolate. Like, okay, that sounds pretty good. I, I think I can deal with that. And I started doing that and it just, from there, I was, that was it. I was, I was drinking hard alcohol a lot to, to try and get some sleep and take that edge off. You, you made a note when we first talked about, and I have in quotation marks, don't show weakness. What I, I'm trying to remember what that was about. And yeah. Yeah, you know, that, uh, that was definitely part of the culture. I mean, uh, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I was brought up by guys that had been on the job for 20, 30 years prior to, you know, early nineties and, uh, 
on one hand, it was always like, you know, you knew that, that your the guys that you worked with, they, everybody had your back, you know, and at the same time, there was this culture, uh, especially in the, in the, in the agency that I, that I ended up working for, for so long, the, the agency that I retired from, you know, a bunch of young guys that like, there was always this feeling of you you know like they were you were in the middle of like a, a feeding frenzy of sharks you didn't want to be the guppy you know you didn't want to be the little fish in the room full of sharks and there was always this sort of like underlying tone of like anybody that showed any weakness it just got exploited and it did and everybody was fair game you know, I, and I was the same way, you know, I could, I could just find any little bit of weakness that somebody had and, and whether it was just an excuse to make, to, you know, bust someone's balls or, you know, make fun of somebody or, or, uh, or, or, you know, just like open that wound and just like, Hey, you know, you didn't, you just didn't want to expose yourself in any way being weak. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly didn't want to be the, be the little fish in the, you know, being surrounded by sharks and just, I, I just, it made me feel real, real vulnerable. So I definitely kind of put on this cocky, uh, exterior. So you have that, you have that pressure not to show weakness because of the obvious, what you just said. And then we also talked about this kind of being a, a turning point where, where you started truly becoming like this black cloud at work. Correct. Oh yeah. Yeah. Man, I, I, I went through a long period of time where, where, um, I got, if it wasn't just pure, uh, call volume, it was definitely, um, like any of the, like really kind of bad stuff, uh, any, any, anything that was weird, like, uh, nasty, just like I, I started picking this stuff up and, and the other guys, you know, were kind of joking with me some of the times, like some of the guys would be like, oh man, I love, love working with Dave because like all the cool shit happens whenever I work with Dave and, and, uh, other guys would be like, man, I don't want to work with you. Like, like there's this, you're, you're the black cloud, man. This is like, this is ridiculous. Um, and so an example of that is, um, uh, in Washington state at, at, at that time, we used to get every agency would get money from the state, from the health division based on, um, you know, trauma and like, uh, like cardiac arrest calls, um, the, the state would, would get all of the statistics together at the end of the year and, and each agency would get a little bit of money based on their call volume and how many traumas or how many card, you know, how many codes you had. And, uh, you know, they'd kick some money your way to buy equipment. And so, uh, one year, the, the chiefs came to me and said, Hey, you know, we got, we got some money from the state for pediatric, um, cardiac arrest equipment, what do you think we should buy? 
And I was out in the gym working out and, and I remember thinking to myself, cause at the time, uh, the, the, the chiefs at, at that time, I was a guy that had come up through the ranks and, and uh, he had just become the chief. I think he might've even still been the acting chief at that time, but, um, they, it was unusual for him to come to me to ask me for something because we, he and I didn't get along, but I had always been on the executive board with the, the union. Uh, whether the president or vice president, secretary, whatever, always on the grievance committee. And, uh, we always have a lot of grievances. So he and I didn't get along so well. And so that was unusual. Like what? And I asked him, I was like, well, why are you coming to me? Because it was weird that he would do that. And then, uh, and he said, uh, he said, well, because you've had all of the pediatric cardiac arrests this in this last year. So I figured, you know, you might have some input on what it is that we need. And, uh, and I'm standing there, you know, like I said, I, I remember very clearly being in the, in the gym working out. Then just, I just in my mind, I was just like, man, that's heavy, you know? And I don't remember what I told him. Um, you know, probably told him we need some like Brazil tapes or something. I don't know, but um, he leaves and, and the guy that I was in the gym looking out with is just like, and we both just kind of stand there and he's like, man, he's like, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy, man. I think he, he used some more colorful language than that, but um, I was like, yeah, that, that's, that's crazy. They didn't know. Just. Yeah, went back to working out. I remember, I remember just feeling like, like, man, this is kind of unreal, you know? And, uh, and I, and I, and I'm thinking like, oh, well, no wonder I'm so pissed off all the time. You know, I, I just remember, I remember standing there and I was next to a door that had a glass piece of glass pane in the door and, and kind of seeing my reflection and looking at myself in the reflection and just like, not liking what I saw. It was just like, didn't, I didn't want to look at myself in the reflection of that door and just kind of, you know, tried to brush it off as best I could and probably made some sick joke about it or something, who knows, and you know, whatever, and went back to it. But yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, you said you didn't like what you saw and you, you, you kind of, you didn't really deal with it. Um, uh, and I, and I think one of the points you made throughout this was that you, you didn't deal with any of this at all as you're going, as it's happening yeah. to you. And, and you talked about gathering stones in the backpack. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and literally that's all you were doing. You would just pick one up and, and put it there. Right. Yeah. You know, and that was a, that was a, a analogy that I, that I had heard somebody use and I thought it was really fitting. You know, every call you go on, every single call, doesn't matter what it is, you know, if you think about having this backpack and, and, uh, you know, one call might be, uh, might be a, a pebble, you know, another call might be a kind of a small rock. And some of those calls are going to be, you know, pretty big, heavy, heavy rocks, but yeah, you know, you just, every, every call you go on, you're, you're adding just another stone to that, to that backpack and, you know. Some people can carry a lot of weight, you know, some people not so much. And, and, uh, 
you know, at one point or another, I think we all get to the point where I think our backpack gets kind of full and, you know, maybe starts to overflow a little bit and, you know, that, that can kind of come and go, you know, that can, that can wax and wane, I think, but, uh, I was, I was already to the point, uh, like, I think my backpack was, was full. Like I, I was carrying the amount of weight that, that I could carry and, you know, any, anything that got added to it after that was just, it was, it could be too much. Yeah. So you're gathering all these stones, you're loading your backpack down, you're, you're, you've started drinking to sleep, you're drinking to cope. Yes. Correct. Mm -hmm. But, but as we talked about, you, you thought you were like in the best of times at some point, you're like, these were the good times. You're like, like, like people were looking up to you. People wanted to be like you. Yeah. But you're, you gave this appearance, right? Of of keeping it together. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you're right. We, uh, at that time, um, we had grown kind of overnight in, in the department. We had, um, we had started, uh, being a fire district, we covered a lot of area, a lot of unincorporated areas. And, and, uh, we had started providing coverage for a couple of the cities. And, uh, um, went from being a small agency to being kind of a, you know, medium size agency, um, hire a bunch of guys kind of overnight, you know, uh, grew or we had some rapid growth and, uh, um, so, you know, I, I'd been around a while and, uh, you know, had a bunch of younger guys, um, coming in and, uh, working with us and. And, uh, the, the shift that I was on, that we were all pretty tight. We were all pretty solid with each other. And uh, we had, man, we, we would just have such a great time at work. Um, you know, we, we just, we all got along really well, always joking around with each other and, and, uh, hung out with, uh, hung out with each other off duty. And, and, uh, it was a good time, you know, and all these new guys, all these young guys, like they all wanted to be on our shift. You know, they all wanted to have what we had. And, uh, I, I was always kind of known as that guy, like that with my sick sense of humor, I was always just crossing that line just a little bit. Like there was, there was always that line and then I would cross it. It, it just kind of known for that. And everybody, you know, thought it was kind of thought it was pretty funny and, and, uh, and again, you know, that, that, that was a way for me to cope and, uh, you know, as long as I could do that and as long as I could make people laugh and, and, uh, joke around, you know, in that moment, I, I'd be okay. So I just thrived on it, just thrived on it and just tried to, you know, I was always trying to get to that. And, uh, cause, cause it truly, in, in those moments, I, you know, that was really the only time that I felt okay. It was with the dark humor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know, the kind of gallows humor that we have or, you know, making, we're just, you know, always just making fun of each other and just, uh, like we were just ruthless to each other, but it, it was, it was all in, 
and fun. You know, I think, I think everybody, I, I don't think there was anybody that felt bullied or anything like that. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, kind of like that firehouse, almost immature, sophomoric humor, you know, pulling pranks on each other and, and, uh, joking with each other and, and, uh, you know, just always, we were just always having fun and, uh, but you know, as, like I said, as long as I could do that, uh, de definitely not the kind of humor that you would have in a normal job, <laughs> definitely the kind of humor that would get you sent to human resources <laughs> on a, on a regular nine to five office job. But, uh, yeah, as long as I could be doing that, I'd feel okay in that moment. One of the things that we talked about, well, actually we, we talked very briefly about it, but you expanded some more on the notes was the, the thriving in chaos and, and, uh, the more chaotic yeah. an, an environment would be, or the make more chaotic a, a call would be, or a scene would be, that's where you, that's where you, sh you, you shine the brightest. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, and I, at the, at the time I thought I, I really felt like I, that was something that I enjoyed. Um, you know, and especially being younger, I think that, I, I think that we, uh, as firefighters, I think that's probably true for most of us. Um, you know, it's kind of one of the reasons why we, why we got into the light of work and, you know, um, just the, I, I think that we're just the kind of people that can thrive in those, in those environments. But, um, I always wanted to be like, and it was a point of pride for me. Like I always wanted to be the worst, the, the situation was that I always wanted to be the, the calmest and most like put together. Um, it, I had heard somewhere at some point that like fighter pilots will have this sort of like competition with each other over the, over their communications over the radio, you know, like they can be in some, like the, the worst situation, most life-threatening situation imaginable. And like, they will try to like out calling each other, you know, they want to be, they want to see who can be the calmest on the radio and who can, ha who can have that appearance of being like, like, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm about to die, but you know, whatever, no big deal. Just another day at the office kind of a thing. And so I, I, I always admired that and I always tried to emulate that and, um, which was great. You know, it was, it, it was a good tool to have because truly uh, so many times and in, in a scenario where there could be, you know, a lot of like emotion going on uh, around me and, and, and with that kind of a demeanor, I could really kind of bring that level of emotion down pretty, pretty well in, in, in a lot of cases and, and, uh, and it, and it worked very well for me throughout my whole career, uh, dealing with, with other people and, and, and high stress situations. But on the inside, man, I was losing it. I was just like on the outside, you know, it was very much a, a forced sort of conscious effort to put on this, you know, persona of being super cool and, and, uh, you know, put together, but that energy, that, that, that chaos that I felt on the inside, like it had to go somewhere, you know, it, 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 
and it, it ended up going somewhere. And again, that usually came out in the form of anger, the yeah. anger, anxiety. Yeah. It was, it, it was interesting because you wrote those notes and, and I don't think I'd, I'd put that into my frame of reference before where you, you, you remain calm and even the most chaotic situation, but yeah, that's, that's valuable, but also unless you get rid of it and express it somewhere, where does it go? And I, I guess I'd never really put those two together. Yeah. Cause it's, it builds. Yeah. I mean, you, you're not, you're not letting it off. You're not telling somebody if, if, if you're not talking to somebody, if you're not expressing it, it, it just builds and you're right. It's, it's like the, uh, it's like the, the, the tea kettle just sprouting off that steam exactly. as it boils. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a percolator cop, you know, like, like set the coffee on the stove with the percolator and, and, uh, that thing's just constantly letting them steam, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, I always had that bottled up inside and, and it didn't matter even, even with the you know, vigorous physical exercise that just didn't seem to let that pressure out in, in, you know, maybe temporarily, but yeah, that was always sort of bottled up inside me. You never, I, I could never find a way to get rid of that feeling. And I remember so many times just thinking that like, there's something wrong with me. Like, I, I mean, why am I so pissed off all the time? Why do I have such a short fuse? Why? Why, and you know, it's like I, that, the hypervigilance too, right? That was to the extreme. Um, that's something that I still struggle with. Um, almost, almost to the point of paranoia, you know, like, um, I would have a hard time being anywhere with, you know, in crowds or any, any place where I didn't, you know, I, I, I couldn't go to a restaurant, you know, without, couldn't go to a hotel without counting the way of finding where all the exits are. And, um, you know, if I sat anywhere in a crowded place, I always had to be where I could see everything and everybody and, and, uh, had to, like, if I had to get out and, you know, I couldn't just go to dinner, for instance, at a restaurant and just sit down and have dinner. I'd sit down and okay, if this happens, how am I going to get you know, my family out of here, what am I going to do to, you know, if, if something goes down, I got to be the one that's got to take care of everybody and, and, you know, um, mitigate the situation. And, and, uh, so I'm always looking for things to go wrong and how am I going to respond to it? And how am I going to, you know, get to safety and all this stuff. And, and, uh, just always like, uh, on edge, always on edge, um, always, had a you know, quick temper. And, uh, yeah, it's just like, man, I don't, I don't remember being like this before, you know, and like, what, why am I like this? This don't, I don't understand. So during this whole time, um, 2003 is, is the significant call you, you discussed with the, with the pediatric, pediatric, um, code. And then, and then in, in, in our discussion, you, you talk about fast forwarding 15 years and, and I'm going to assume during that 15 year gap, the gap between where we're talking, 
yeah. and that you're just piling these calls on. It's you're still putting the, the rocks in the backpack, and you're just you're not uh, you're not seeing anybody to talk about any of this during that time. Am I am I correct? Right. Yeah. Um. So at, early on, at one point, um, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline after this. You know, this kind of this first event here and. With this, with this girl in 03, but sometime within, you know, maybe a, a, a year or two after that. Um, cause I, I do know that I was having, you know, I, like I said, I was pissed off all the time and I was, you know, not always getting along real well with, with people at work. And, uh, um, the chief had actually sent me to go see a psychiatrist because you know he's like you're having some pretty serious behavioral problems you know when you know you need to go see a psychiatrist and uh so they they sent me to a to this guy to uh um i'm just like why you know this is ridiculous why am i why am i even here this is this is stupid but then you know i gotta do what i was just you know this is what i've been told to do and the guy ended up he was like a He'd had a background as being a chaplain with, uh, some big law enforcement agencies. And, and, uh, so I was like, you know, maybe this is, maybe this guy's probably, you know, somebody that I might be able to relate to. Cause he started asking me very specifically about work. He's like, you know, I don't know why you're here. I don't know what's going on. I just have some notes from your employer and, you know, maybe you're having some behavioral problems and, uh, you know, what do you think's going on? And I was like, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I was like, all I know is that I'm pissed off all the time and I'm not really sure why. And he's like, well, tell me about, you know, some of the, some of the calls you had at work. And I, and I started just kind of unloading on him and he's like, well, he goes, you have PTSD. He goes, that's bottom line. He goes, you, you, you know, he goes, I'm not your psychiatrist. I'm not, you know, I don't work for you. I, working for the, for the department that hired me to see this one time to see if we can figure out what's going on. And he's like, and that's, that's what my diagnosis is. And, uh, and that was it. Like, okay, great. Thanks. You know? And then I never really, I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea what that meant. I, I didn't get really any explanation for it. Uh, like, okay, duly noted. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah. Great. What do I do with that info? Yeah, exactly. So I just kind of went on like, okay, well, maybe that, you know, that within the back of my mind kind of popped up here and there, but I didn't, again, I had no idea what that meant. And I did go there. There was a couple of times where I, uh, in that next 10, 15 years, uh, where I would get to the point where I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. And I'd call BAP and you know, get a few, get the, like the six free counseling sessions or whatever. And, and it was always, it would be with some, you know, very well-meaning therapist that was completely out of their lane, mm. you know, like in, in those days, it was really hard to find somebody that I could, I, I didn't even know the question to ask. I didn't even know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm looking for someone to tell me. And, um, you know, there, not, there weren't very many people that had experience dealing with first responders at all. 
Um, so I, I go and do, you know, find a counselor here and there and do my six free sessions, not feel any better than I did when I, when I got there and just kind of move on. And, um, so I would, I want to say probably like, um, 2018, right around, it was Easter weekend and it was a Sunday. I was out with my, my wife and we're walking the dogs and, and, uh, one of our dogs, was, she was an old dog and, you know, she was having a hard time walking in those days and, and, uh, we're, we're walking along and all, and we go by this house and all of a sudden out of nowhere, this big, big old mastiff just comes charging out of the, the open garage door and runs over and, and. What I see is this giant dog that comes over and, and attacks my, my old dog. She's rolling on the ground and this dog's going top of her. My wife's kind of freaking out a little bit. Then I just got vision and just instantly, like I was in full in my mind, like that dog was okay. It had just attacked one of my dogs and. And now it's going to go after my wife. It's going to go after the other dog. It's going to go after my wife. This is like life and death. Like this is full on like fighting for our lives in my mind. And, uh, I, put a pretty, pretty good beating on, on, the, on that dog and the dog's owner came out and, um, was, it was a woman and it was like a, you know, like I said, it was Easter weekend. So there was like, well, this full family there. And, uh, I had enough presence of mind to see that, okay, there's, there's a, there's a woman that's coming out. She's not coming after me. She's just trying to protect her dog. Uh, and then there's like kids there in the backgrounds watching this. There's like some older folks there and, um, I had enough presence of mind to just try to back off at that point, thankfully. And, but, but I was still, I, I unleashed the verbal Kung Fu yeah. on, onto all of them. And, um, um, anyway, we kept walking and went back home and my, and my wife was just like, wow, honey, that was a lot. She's like, you're, you're. She, I remember the phrase she used. She's like, wow, you really love your American show on that one. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is that supposed to be in that? And she's, yeah, you just kind of, uh, you just kind of unleash the, the, the redneck fury on, on the, she's like, I've never heard you talk like that. She goes, you know, there, uh, um, she's like, you know, we're, that was a lot. So we're walking home kind of in silence and I'm trying to figure out what the heck just happened. And, uh, and she's like, you know, I appreciate how quickly you are able to react to things. And I appreciate in this instance for sure, how you could have thought that this dog was, you know, attacking us. And, and I, and I, and I appreciate how 
rapidly you were able to respond to, you know, to defend us. But she goes, do you know what, what really was happening? <laughs> and she's like that. Yeah, that was a dog that, that was a, uh, a big dog. That was a big, that was a mastiff, but she's like, I think it was a puppy, like a, maybe a one or two year old kind of puppy. And I don't think it was out to hurt mm. anybody. I think that she's like, I think that it just was coming out to like, wanted to like play and just because of its sure size and momentum just happened to knock her dog over and not, it wasn't an atomic. It was just a bumbling, big old goofy dog that was enthusiastic and wanted to play and, uh, and then I kind of replayed the table and I was like, man, I think she was right. You know, and I, oh, I way, way overreacted and, and I had been prior to this, um, just always just kind of barely holding it together. Just, I mean, just on edge all the time. So I called the AP and, uh, made an appointment to, to see a counselor. And again, you know, here's this person who sure met well, um, and, and she had worked in the hospital setting as a mental health care professional at some point and, and uh, worked in, in the ER and stuff. And I, and I remember her, I remember seeing her in, in the ER in one of the hospitals and, um, so at least. I could kind of relate to her a little bit, but I, I started talking to her and, um, you know, and, and at some point I brought up the fact that I was possibly maybe feeling suicidal, you know, I, I, which I, I was, there was no possible or maybe to it, but I just kind of wanted to put my toe in water and see how she would react. Hmm. And she's like, She's like, so, or, you know, if that's something that you're serious about, um, I have to let your employer know and I, and I have to report this on the mandatory reporter. If you, if you're feeling suicidal, I have to tell somebody And I was like, no, I'm just, you know, you know, like sometimes you just kind of think like, oh, that was dumb. And maybe I should, you know, maybe I should just kill myself or whatever. you like, this, it's like a fleeting thought, like not even, it's, I'm not serious at all, you know? Forget I ever said that, you know, I take it back because on my mind, because I, I didn't want, you know, I was like, man, she, I'll lose my job for sure. Like, no, they'll, they'll kick me to the curb so fast. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that'll be that I'll be done. I, I don't have any transferable skills. I don't know what else I'm going to do. So, uh, you know, this is, this is all I've done in, in my whole working lives and I don't have anything else I can do. I can't lose this job. And so I'm just like, no, that, you know, forget about it. And, and I would still go see her once a week, but I would just talk about everything else, but that I would talk about anything else that was frustrating about my day or, you know, things that were frustrating at work. No, I never really touched on the stuff that I knew that I needed to be talking about because I was afraid that she would tell my employer. So I went on like that for maybe a year and then, uh, yeah, then it just, everything just kind of came to a head. So when you say it came to a head, how did it come to a head? Well, because keep, I, mean, I guess the 
everybody should keep in mind that because the drinking doesn't slow down, correct? Oh, no. It's a matter of fact, that, that's, that's probably getting, no, not probably, it's getting worse. If, if it's not even possible. It was getting to the point where um, my, my wife was like, man, this is too much. Like, you need to, you're, you're drinking too much. And then, and then she's like, and, and, you know, and you're making me drink too much. This is, it's not healthy. And, uh, you know, she's like, I don't, I don't like, I don't like it. I don't like you when you're doing it and it's got to stop. And, and, you know, the message that she was sending was really clear, but I wasn't ready to hear it. The only thing that I knew is that, well, now she's paying more attention. So I got to be more careful. And by careful, you, know? you just mean sneaking or, or what, what oh, man, look, yeah, just yeah, hiding. Yeah. Like literally like, um, so, you know, I doing shift work. I, especially during the, the school year, the kids would be at school. She's at work. I get off work and, and, you know, I don't have anybody to supervise me for, for at least half a day. So I would get off work and go to, um, go to the Moose Lodge and, uh, sit down and have a glass of whiskey. I mean, when I say a glass, I mean like a, like a, like a full glass, you know, probably half a pint of whiskey just, just to be able to make it home so that I could maybe get some sleep. Cause if I was just getting off work, it didn't matter if we had calls or not at night. I was, I couldn't sleep. I would not sleep at you it used to be here in the early days that like I slept the best at work because I had my own room, mm. my own bed. I didn't, you know, um, I didn't have kids, dogs, you know, partner in bed, no, you know, nothing to do unless we were getting calls. Uh, but if we didn't get any calls, I mean, like I would sleep so well at work and I could fall asleep right away. Um, but for the past several years at this point, like, I would lie in bed almost like almost in a cold sweat, just like, just dreading the, the, you know, any call like that, that would come up and I just, I, I couldn't not sleep at all. So I, and I couldn't sleep at home either. I just, I just couldn't sleep. I couldn't relax enough to sleep in any way, shape or form. And, uh, but it, there was even a point, um, many, many years prior to this, um, where for about a year, um, and, and I want to say this was probably within the, within a couple year time frame around 2003, maybe like 2005, 2006, where I, at any given point, I never slept for more than an hour or two at a time. I don't know whether I was at work or anything, didn't matter. I mean, I, I went for days without sleeping and, uh, and then I kind of, I don't know, just through sheer exhaustion, I kind of fell out of that pattern for about a year, but, um, I was definitely back in that pattern now. And, uh, um, so just to be able to, you know, and that's what I would tell myself. It's like, I'm, I, I just, I have to drink to be able to get any sleep so that I can function. And, uh, but in order to do that, I knew that I was being monitored by, by my wife. So, 
I, I couldn't have any evidence. So I'd have to go someplace to drink and then come home, sleep half the day and then get up and pretend like that I had just taken a nap, you know? Oh, my wife would be like, oh, what'd you do today? Oh, I had to take a nap. And then I'd go run around and do errands and pick the kids up from school and all kinds of stuff, still being drunk, you know? But for me, in my mind, I'd slept it off. It was no big deal. Hmm. I was hiding, I was hiding bottles of booze out in the bushes, out in the yard. So I could have access to it without being monitored. So back to you saying it, it all came to a head. What does, what does that look like for you? So I had gotten to the point, you know, like I said, I went to this counselor and, and, and I, and by that point, I already knew that, like, I had in my mind gotten to the point that I just thought that I was so far beyond being able to be helped because I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what was wrong, but I can't, but I knew, but I did know what was wrong by that point. You know, I, I did kind of have an idea and I just didn't know how to do anything about it in the, in the, you know, the people that I would ask for help, you know, like here I am, I'm kind of like asking for help and being told that, well, I have to tell your, your employer, I have to, you know, I have to tell people. I was like, no, that's, that's not helping. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, and it, and it, you know, it was not anything, uh, I, I don't think this, this person meant to send that message. That's just the message that I received. And so I just got to the point where I was just hopeless. I was like, you know, but there's, there's nothing that can be done to make me better. I'm not getting any better. I'm getting worse. And it's going to get to the point where, um, it's just something's going to have to give. And I, I started rationalizing that because right about that time in, in Washington state, they passed a law. We, we've got really good presumptive laws for firefighters in, in Washington, you know, pretty much any kind of cancer that you get, uh, you know, heart disease, whatever. You know, if, if you've been a career firefighter for more than 10 years and you come down with a whole list of occupational illnesses, you know, it's presumptive that it was on the job and, you know, and there's some really good care here for, for that kind of stuff. And right about that time, they had, they had passed the law for presumptive PTSD for, for firefighters and, and police officers. And I knew that that was what was going on with me and I thought, you know, I can't be fixed. I can't, there, there's nothing that I can do for myself, but maybe this is a way that I can take care of my family, you know? So if I committed suicide, I'm, you know, and this is the lie that I told me, this is a story that I told myself. It's like, so if I commit suicide, that's a one in a duty death now. And, uh, so I started, I, I, it's weird, but in the, in that I started to find like some hope, 
not for me. I mean, I knew at that point, you know, in my mind that, that like there was no hope for me, but like this could be a way for me to be able to take care of my family because I can't take care of them any other way. And, and so I had started to, uh, I had started making some solid plans and, you know, as you know, we've, we've seen, uh, you know, all of the ways that somebody can check out and, you know, I start going down this mental checklist of like, well, no, I can't do that. I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to use a, I don't want to do anything that's going to. I don't want anybody to have to clean up after me and, uh, and I don't necessarily, and I don't want to be like found at home by my family. I just kind of want to, like in my mind, I just had this scenario where I would just drive out into the, into the woods and, and, uh, and I had a very detailed plan and I thought, you know, it'll just be one of those deals where. Maybe some hunter's going to come across me like a year down the road or whatever. By that point, um, you know, my family's going to be taken care of. And, and I thought, like, I just couldn't wrap my mind around. It's like, yeah, I mean, they'll be sad, you know, but really, I mean, are they really going to be sad or are they, or is it, are they going to be relieved? And I think, you know, I think that, I think that for the most part, most People are just going to kind of be relieved and, you know, they'll get over it. You know, there's really, I'm not really in the grand scheme of things. I don't make any real big difference in, in the world around me. So and this is the best solution I could have for my, for my family. Um, there were, there were, there were several days where I was actually where I was going out like, okay, this is it. This is the day I'm, I'm heading out and doing this. And so I'd kind of get the stuff I needed, go out and start heading out the door. And I got this dog that he's, he's, uh, like, he's kind of a, he's kind of a special needs kid. It's <laughs> yeah. It, it, I just, he, he can't really function in the world without having somebody around to take care of him. And, and, you know, like I'm definitely like his person. And, uh, so I'd go to head out and he'd follow me out the door. I'd turn around to close the gate and he'd be standing there looking at me with this look of like, you know, where are you going? What are you going to do? And, and I'd look at him and I'd just be like, I'm like, shit, I can't. Okay, I can't do it today because you know someone's got to take care of the take care of the dog, and you know I feel guilty about that because you know for a couple of times that stopped me, but it's like why, why that? I mean, I I should have been thinking about that with my my wife and my kids and my friends and family. It's like, that should have been the, the reason, but I, I, I just didn't have the ability to, uh, just to see anything that wasn't right in front of me. Well, you'd convinced yourself that they were going to be better off. 
Oh, absolutely. Yes. So there's and a I difference there, I think, is you convinced that the family would be better off, but yeah. then you look at this dog and you're like, well, I'm the, the, I, I'm this dog's person. Exactly. So how's yeah. that going to, he can't be, yeah. or she can't be better off if I'm gone. Yeah. So I, yeah. I can see that connection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You described yourself as being in a fugue state during this time. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and, and, you know, clearly there, there was a lot of the times where that would be, uh, just the side effect of being higher drunk, um, for sure. Or, or just that, uh, just absolute lack of sleep also, but, but there was, uh, something else there too there i mean a lot of the times um i just didn't feel like i was inside my own body and that in the in the in, and sometimes i would be at home I, even if i was here and doing stuff what I, I was never really here i was never really present i was just I, a lot of the times I really felt like I was kind of out of my body, like looking at myself and the things around me in the third person. And I would hear sirens in the background sometimes. And I had to, I had to really stop. And I mean, like truly stop and, and double check that I hadn't killed myself. I would hear sirens and I'd be like, oh, did I? Did I do it? Did I, and, and now they're, they're coming, you know, and did I, you know, am I dead? Like there were times when I didn't know because I didn't feel like I didn't feel grounded. I didn't feel like I had connection to the world around me. I, so let's talk about October 26th. Of 2019. Yeah. What's that day? Well, how's that day start for you? I, I don't, there's nothing remarkable that stands out for me on that day. I, I don't, it's think that I was off that day. I don't remember if I had just gotten off work, but Again, it was a, it was a weekday, uh, clearly because, you know, my boys are in school, my wife's at work, I'm home by myself and, uh, and, you know, so I had started drinking. I don't know what the catalyst was, but I just remember being suddenly in this state of like everything was just being completely overwhelmed. Um, all of the, like a, a lot of the times I would, uh, something would trigger me in some way and I would start having like this, it was almost like a. You know, like you take like a, like a little 
book of, you know, like a flip, like you flip through a book that's that read that has an image drawn onto each page and then it'll sort of become animated. Mm -hmm. So it's just ra rapid, you know, this, this rapid sequence of images and, and I, and I remember clearly getting uh, just like this rapid sequence of, of images and of past incidents and in the emotion that goes along with that. Um, it, even more so than the images, it would be the emotions that surrounded that. It would be the, a lot of the times the things, one of the things that really tripped me up was, uh, listening to maybe a parent or a spouse or a family member that was witnessing their loved one. Um, you know, being severely injured or dead or whatever that, that, that sound of somebody being in that acute state of grief, uh, could really, man, that, that, like, I had a hard, hard time with that. So, and I remember for whatever reason, I don't know what it was that, that triggered that, but I started having the that feeling of like, I just could not get some of those images out of my head. I couldn't get that sound out of my head and, and, uh, and I, and I couldn't get the, like, I kept going back to that little girl, like, man, which I, I think that maybe at this point, the, the, the narrative in my head was that like, I totally missed that intubation that, you know. I'd made her go without oxygen for too long. And, you know, she would have lived if it wasn't for that. And, and, uh, and just in absolute, just like a spiral, like a, like a, like a fighter plane that had been shot out of the sky and just like, I'm going through this downward spiral and it's completely out of control. And so I went into my room and locked the door, grabbed a gun and, uh, and, and, and I just, I'm sitting on the edge of my bed and, and I'm, and I'm just like, um, I remember saying out loud, like to my wife, like, man, I'm so like, I'm so sorry. I didn't want it to be like this. I didn't want you enough to find me like this. And, uh, and I, and I, you know, it was a revolver, 357 revolver definitely would have done the, done the job. Um, pulled the hammer back and the finger on the trigger and, and put it up to my head and, and, uh, and started putting pressure on the, on the trigger. And, and I was just like, I, I just got this, like, uh, this voice in my head that. It wasn't, it was a, it was an, it was a, an interesting sort of like, it's a, it's a voice. It's a, it's like many voices in my head that were just like, no, just like this one word, just like me. I'm sorry. You're on your, I assume you're on your bed. Yeah. And yeah. You hear these voices, they, you know, kind of what, like a cacophony of, of various voices. Yeah, I don't, 
I still don't know how to adequately describe it. It was like, it wasn't a thought that I had. It wasn't, you know, when you, when you have that internal dialogue, at least for me, when I have internal dialogue, it's kind of in, it's in my voice. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's clearly an internal sort of dialogue, but this was, uh, this was different. It was like, it wasn't my own internal dialogue. It was, uh, it just, it seemed like if there could be all of the voices in the world that just kind of in chorus at one time, it just, you know, it was like, no. And, uh, I remember that very clearly. And, and also to be honest with you, I was, I was drunk at the time and probably high too. So who knows? Um, but, uh, I do remember having a very, very lucid moment at that point that I remember feeling quite present and quite lucid and like, what the fuck am I doing? And, uh, and then I just started bawling and I put the gun down and, uh, and my wife was at work and like, man, probably shouldn't be texting her at work with this, but I gotta, we gotta do something. And, uh, I remember sending her a text saying kind of basically what, what had, had just happened. And she's like, well, I'm calling 911. And I was, and I convinced her not to like, don't do that. You're going to get all the guys I work with, all the deputies that I know, um, they're all going to come here. And I'm going to lose my job. We're going to lose everything. You know, if I can't work, you know, um, just, I just need to go to bed. And, and at this point, she had had enough of me calling her or texting her when I was kind of in these moments of crisis and, you know, um, yeah, she, I think that she had. They had more than enough at this point. So she, anyway, she called her dad who lives nearby and he came over and sat with me for a while. And, and, uh, and I just remember telling him, like, I just got to go to bed. I just want to go lie down. So I went and went to bed and I woke up at like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning or something. And looking at the, at the clock and I was like, oh man, we got, I got an overtime shift, you know? I gotta be, I need, I need to try and get back to sleep so I can, and I gotta, I gotta, gotta work in a couple hours. So get up, uh, go to work. It was a Saturday, um, go in and, and, uh, just like it's any other day, you know? And, and by this point I had, I had shown up to work multiple times where maybe the night before I had been near suicidal or had, you know, been at a, at a pretty rough, rough night. And was, but, you know, being at work, it was like, Hey, what's going on guys? You know, I'm going to go in and fix some breakfast and you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, you know, I'm in the kitchen fixing breakfast and and, uh, the other guys are in the, in the duty office and, and, uh, 
I did notice that I was, I was looking at the clock and, you know, shift or shift starts at eight and, you know, we've got breakfast between eight and eight thirty, And, and, uh, but I always tried to make sure that I had my breakfast and everything ready well before eight. That way, if we had a, if we got a call, at least the, I, I could pick up the, pick up a call for the offgoing guys, you know, one of the offgoing guys so that they wouldn't have get held over. I always tried to be ready early before eight and, but looking at my, looking at my watch and it's like, man, it's, it's a little after eight you know, by this time, usually everybody's in kind of fighting for the stove and everybody's fixing breakfast and whatnot. And, and, uh, I'm just, I'm the only one in there and kind of about that time, the guys come into the kitchen and they all like kind of, I'm at the stove and they all just kind of, you know, do the circle. I mean, the, the, at least the, at least a couple of guys do and they come in and, and uh, the, the captain looks at me and he's like, so how's your day going? And I was like, fine. Yeah. How about you? And he's like, well, you know, we got, we talked to your wife. I think she goes, he goes, I talked to your wife yesterday. I know what happened. And he was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, that was yesterday. I'm <laughs> like, that's fine. I'm good. And he's like, so you're not working today. He goes, we got your, we got your shift covered. You're, you're not working. And he goes in the end, you're not going home. You know, here's, I've got some phone numbers for you to, for you to call. And, and, uh, and the guys that were, that were there, like he, he started getting kind of choked up a little bit, started crying a little bit and, and they, you know, they, they, they all were and or the, the guys that were in there were and, and, uh, and they had, he just says, he goes, you know, you gotta, we gotta take care of you. He goes, you, you, you we can't have it. You know, we can't lose you like this. You know, we can't, we can't do this. We can't have this. And, and you're like, nah. And I know that the, that they, there were some guys like my captain and, uh, and this, this captain, they like, uh, they knew something was going on. Like they had actually been hitting around it. Like, Hey, you know, have you ever heard of the center of excellence? And, you know, maybe that's something that, uh, you know, do you want me to give them a call? And, you know, where do you think that, uh, might be someplace you'd go? And, and you know, prior to that, I was just like, no, what did I, I There's nothing wrong with me. I'm, I can't, I don't need that. Like I'm. I'm here to help everybody else. I don't, I'm not the one that needs to go, you know? And, uh, so I just was like, okay. You know, I just was totally resigned at to that, that point. Like, all right. Yeah. Okay. I'll start making some phone calls. Yeah. And, uh, they had given me some, some numbers of some places to call to see about getting some help and, and, uh, I just weren't really finding any place that, that, that's fit. Um, I ended up later in the afternoon, finally going home. Hey guys, quick break right here, just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone, you know, Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. 
And as it turned out, so that, that weekend was, uh, was one of the big, uh, union events and it was in Boise, uh, Idaho at that time. And so our, I was the vice president of the local at the time. And so the, the president who was also my captain was there, um, you know, our, our state council regional rep was there, the, the IFF, our, you know, area vice president was there and, and these are all guys that knew me and, you know, guys I knew and, and the, uh, the captain that was on duty there, uh, there that day, he had also called them, told them what was going and, uh, I'd, I'd been having some trouble the, the places that I did call, um, weren't gonna be a good fit for me. And then one of the places that I called, they, uh, were like, well, you know, it's a Saturday. We have to, we have to verify your insurance. Can't get you in until Monday until we get your insurance verified. So anyway, the, I got a call from, uh, from my captain. And he said, okay, so me and, you know, Ryan and Ricky, we're, we're here, we're, we're, you know, we understand you're having some problems and we're, uh, you know, we're trying to, uh, you know, sounds like maybe need some help finding a place to be. And, you know, we've got a place for you. And, uh, there's a woman that's going to give you a call here at, you know, two o'clock and you need to answer the phone. And you need to talk to her. You need to do what she tells you to do. Otherwise, said so the, the other alternative is that, you know, we're done taking any chances on you. So if you don't go, if you don't, you know, talk to this lady and kind of go, you know, do what she tells you to do, then basically we're going to have you checked into, uh, you know, do an involuntary hold on you. And so she called. And, uh, I talked to her for like an hour, you know, and I, from the time that I answered the phone and, you know, within just five minutes of talking to this lady, I knew that she was somebody that was going to be able to help me. And I just remember feeling like, so thankful that she was going to be able to help me. And she never asked, she did like an hour on the phone with her. She never asked about my insurance or anything. All she wanted to know was like, can you get on the plane day after tomorrow at four thirty, or, you know, new, those are your two choices to, to come out to, uh, Utah to, for this, uh, this place that I went here now it's like, man, I, you know, I can't just pick up and leave my life for day after tomorrow for, you know, well, it could be a couple months. And, uh, she's like, well, and I said, can I wait till like January or something, you know, and maybe, you know, I'm going to need to, you know, to arrange for sick time and shift trades or whatever. And, you know, I don't know. And, uh, she's like, no, no, doesn't exactly work that way. And, and I've already talked to, you know, your guys and they've made it clear that if you don't want to come out here, then, you know, then they're going to call the sheriff's office and put you on 72 hour hold. Okay. And she goes, you know, if you're having, you know, here, let me give you the phone number of a guy that has been through the same place. He's a firefighter out of, for, for Boise fire, as it turned out. And he's been here, you know, he's willing to talk to anybody that kind of has questions. So I called him and talked to him, you know, probably a couple hours. 
and I was it. I was convinced. I was, I was like, okay, I got to do this. You know, my wife was on board and, you know, it, it all kind of rapidly up in the two days later, I ended up, uh, checking into a detox in a place in Utah, rolled in about midnight and outside of Salt Lake city and, um, was there for a week and then, uh, checked into, uh, uh, re uh residential treatment, um, program, uh, at a place called Deer Hollow and, uh, no, Draper, Utah, and, uh, and that's what they did. That, that's what they do. They, they help people with, uh, strictly help people with, with PTSD and, and trauma. And they, they just have an, an amazing, amazing program. And, and I just jumped in feet first and I didn't know what was going to happen when I got back. I, I had assumed that I would lose my job. I did not, you know, the relationship that we had, um, not just me, but that we as in the, the line staff that had, but the administration was very contentious and, uh, and I was definitely at the, at the center of their radar most of the time because of that. And I just knew it was like, well, this is going to be the perfect opportunity for them to kick me to the curb and, you know, I'll just have to figure that out when I get home. Like right now, I like, uh, this is my one chance to get some help. And I dove in feet first. Oh, I mean, I was in all the way for that. You know, I was there for, I think I was gone for a total of, uh, maybe a month and a half. Cause I know when I got back, it was pretty close to Christmas. Um, and I definitely spent, uh, Thanksgiving there. And, uh, you know, so I was gone for a while and, uh, and while I was there, it's like, I just, I was all in there. And I, mean, I know one of the things you talked about was, I, I apologize. I interrupted you. That you, you were worried about how you could relay the stories of, of the job. I know that was one of the biggest worries you had. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because this was, um, you know, the places that I had, had looked into prior to that were exclusive to first responders. And, um, one of the things that was made clear to me about this place was that it was a very small, uh, operation, you know, they have 15 people, 15 residents and it would be a mixed group. It was mostly first responders, soldiers, uh, you know, former military, um, so the vast majority were going to fall under that category, but they said that, you know, just to be clear that there are going to be a couple of people who are just normal people. <laughs> normal <They're>, people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, okay, great. It, you know, I didn't really think much about it. And then I remember when I got there, we used to. So we had the, the house where we, where we lived and here, you know, had our meals and, and spent most of our, our time kind of off, but, um, there was another, like a cabin that was just a couple steps up, up from there. 
that uh, that's where we would go and sit in a big open room and, and, and have, you know, group therapy. And then the, all of the individual therapists office were there and, and, you know, we called it the pain box. Mm. And, uh, I remember going up that, like that first day to the, to the pain box, of, you know, be, might be in my first time up there. And, uh, I remember looking at a couple, there's a couple of ladies, one lady in particular, who was just kind of a, just like a housewife, you know, kind of like a, kind of like a rich housewife. And I'm looking, and I just remember looking at her and thinking like, how on earth am I going to be able to relate to someone like her? I mean, there was a bunch of other guys in there that were firefighters and cops. There was actually guys in there that I knew from the fire service in, mm. in Washington. Uh, which was actually, which was kind of comforting on one hand and maybe a little bit disturbing on the other. Um, but, uh, but I remember just like, you know, there was her and you know, a couple other people. It was like, how am I going to relate to them? And I had, and I had said something along the line, uh, about, you know, it was like my first or second day, you know? And I opened my big mouth and made some comment about how, you know, there's, I, I've had probably more pediatric codes than most people, it, which I, I think is probably true. There, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot of people that in the, in my experience in the, in the fire service and in emergency services probably haven't had as, you know, many pediatric codes. I was just, that was just what I was, I thought at the time. And I just made some reference to that. And this lady spoke up like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> you have no idea. And, um, and it, and it, as it turned out, she had had witnessed most multiple, multiple pediatric codes and mostly her own kids. And, uh, and I just, in that moment, I just remember. You know, I, I'm definitely famous for opening my mouth and inserting both feet. And there's so many times where I wish this, as I'm saying something, I wish I could just reach out and <laughs> pull it back, just take it back. But, uh, I remember in that moment, just getting bumbled, just like, and, and I think that the, the therapist there, the group therapist had said something about, you know. Well, you know, you're not as unique as you think you are. Yeah. Right. And, uh, uh, it actually, I think that that environment was the best for me because some of the other, other places that are, are more yeah. focused on treating first responders. It seems like from talking to some of those guys that have been there, that it's very much like a firehouse environment and you got a lot of guys that maybe sort of sit around telling war stories and maybe trying to, you know, not, not necessarily one up each other, but one down each other. You know, like, oh yeah, you think you got it bad, you know, <laughs> listen to my side story. And, and I, and I don't think that I would have done well in that environment. Um, and, and being in this environment with a mix of people who I'm still close with, with a lot of a lot of people that I was there with who are not first responders and never have been. Um, 
finding the common humanity, knowing that, okay, you know, that I kind of got over the initial shock of being put in my place, understanding that, no, I'm not unique. I'm uh, just because I have experienced the, you know, the, 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 these traumas for my job, um, that that's just a matter of circumstance. That doesn't make me unique in the fact that I, that I am a person dealing trauma. It doesn't make me unique by any stretch of the imagination, which in, in turn made me realize that I'm not alone. Because mm-hmm. that's something that I had been feeling very much for for such a long time. Like I didn't think anybody, you know, brothers and sisters in the in the fire service, or or the average person on the street, my my wife, friends. Like I didn't think anybody could understand what was going on inside my inside of me, and and, uh, and I just remember. Yeah. I would feel like this big weight being lifted off my shoulders, just like in that instant, knowing that I was not alone and that I would never be alone again in, in that. You took 40 days plus month and a half or so that you were there and it was during the holidays. You come back to work around Christmas time. Oh yeah. Um, and here's this, I've not been in that position, but I've, I've spoken to a number of people who have been in that position of coming back and it can be a weird transition back. What did you find when you transitioned back into work and life for, for lack of a better word? Well, while I was there at Deer Hollow, my individual counselor, you know, she was like, you know, are, is, is this something that you really want to do? Do you, you know, to go back to work? And in my mind, I was like, no, I, I don't, I, I don't want to go back to work. But, you know, the reality was, is that it only had a handful of years left before I'd be eligible for retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think that I had pretty I mean, maybe not quite, but pretty close to how many years of service in, but I still had to be, I, I had a few more years left to go before I turned 53, which is the age of, you know, where, where we could collect our pension. And, uh, and I was like, you know, five more years, whatever it was, like, I can, I can do that. Like five years will go by, like it's nothing. I can do that standard on my head. And now I've got all these tools to deal with this stuff that I've been dealing with, you know, that I'm, it's, it's not going to be fun, but, um, I can do it. I can grind it out. And so the, the kind of the discharge social work person there, dear hollow when I, when I left, she's like, you know, when are you planning on going back to work? And it was like, well, you know, probably, you know, I'm looking at kind of looking at the calendar. like, I think when I come back, I'll be like on a four or six day stretch off anyway. And, so I'll just go after that. It's just like, no, I think that you need to mm-hmm. kind of ease into this. You know, you should probably take at least a couple of weeks off before you go back. I'll arrange it with your work and make sure that you get a couple of weeks off. And so 
I come back and, and I don't tell anybody that I'm back. I don't, you know, I'm not getting on the phone and texting anybody. I'm not, you know, like one or two people knew that I was back and that was it. And it was very disorienting. You know, I'd been in, in between being in detox and being in treatment there, I, I had gotten to a point where, uh, I was in a safe space. I had my schedule every single minute of every day was, was very well regimented. Right. And, uh, you know, now the I I'm home and, uh, you know, understandably so my wife is, you know, like she's not quite, you know, she's been away from me for a while and she's been dealing with her own, with her own struggles with me being gone. And, you know, it was just kind of a, it was a weird space to be in, uh, here at home and again, uh, and, and I don't really remember it this way, but I, I can definitely look, look back and see that. Yeah. That, that, that would be the case for sure. And then, uh, you know, my wife said that when I came back that I would just sit here at the dining room table and just kind of be on my laptop. And like she said that I would be pretty clearly checked out for long periods of time, but she would try and talk to me and I just, I didn't even know that she was trying to talk to me and long periods of time would go by and I'd just be sitting here, just completely checked out and had a hard time leaving the house. Really. I had a hard time, like, um, just going to the store, being like, I end, I actually ended up at one point I got, I ended up getting a smartwatch because, uh, uh, I needed to kind of keep track of my heart rate. Right. Like I'd, I, I'd be sitting in a room with a resting heart rate of like 120, 130. Uh, I lost a lot of weight. There was a couple of people that, that, uh, they're like, do you have cancer? Like I was losing, I was dropping weight so fast and had a hard time going anywhere, doing anything. Uh, I really felt disoriented. And, and when I went back to work, either I had had a lot of apprehension about going back to work for a lot of reasons. One of, one of which was that I truly felt that I would walk in to work and immediately be called into the chief's office and terminated. I, I was just waiting for that to happen. Um, when I did get back to work, fortunately, I think my first shift back was at, at uh, one of the stations that's like our main stations, right? Where the admin is, you know, so you're, you're kind of seeing admin all day. It was at another station where you know, we're kind of just like 15 miles away, you know, they, they have to, you know, you don't see many admin and you know, it's just the guys and, and, uh, it was kind of a mixed bag when I got there, there were some guys that were like, oh man, you know, so glad to have you back. And you know, how do you feel? And, you know, welcome back and really, you know, made me feel welcome, you know, and I'm just like, oh, I just want to, you know, don't please come. Thank you. I appreciate it. But you know, I, you know, I just want to come back and go to work. And there was one guy in particular that I'd worked with for a long time that, and I know that he's struggling 
you know, and I, to this day, I know he still struggles. It's kind of in the same, a lot of the same ways that I was struggling. And, uh, I came in and, uh, and, you know, sitting on the recliner and, and he got up and left. Like it, it, I came into the room, he'd leave. It, and, and unless we had a call, he wouldn't talk to me. Um, it really, that really hurt my feelings. And, and I had some, some guys that, that, that was the case, you know, um, and I know that some of it was, um, now I know now that for the most part, like those guys that, that could go into that category, had nothing to do with me, you know, had absolutely nothing to do with me. But at the time I was like, well, okay, this is what happens when you show weakness. Now I'm a not, now I'm the pariah, you know? Um, but I know that it was it, for them, it was probably kind of like looking in the mirror and, you know, they, they were scared and, uh, and, and so I know that and all, but it was such a hard thing coming back. Like when I did go, what, like when I got back, I, I didn't hear anything from, like, I expected that I would have to come back and sit down with human resources and do, I didn't know what paperwork I was going to have to do. I didn't know if, um, if they were going to have to send me someplace to do an evaluation would be, you know, my fit to even come back or, um. Like, am I going to get fired or, you know, am I going to have to like take a, you know, make up a bunch of training, you know, all this, I was there, you know, stuff that I missed that I'm going to have to catch up on. And I didn't hear anything, not a word, not an email. Like when, when I did work up at the main station, uh, being right there in the mix of, uh, the admin, not never saw a single person from the, from the office. Um. Sure. Maybe a couple of weeks. I saw one chief one day where he was walking through the station. I was walking the other way. We, we had to pass each other and he's like, Oh, glad to have you back. And they just kept on going, you know, oh, how are you? You know, okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Glad to have you back. Good job. You know, and kind of kept on going and I'm just all day, every day I'm waiting. I'm just waiting for a call to the office room, waiting for one of the, the guys on the executive board from the, from the local to show up in their personal vehicle. Cause they're going to have to represent me in the chief's office. Cause I'm getting terminated. And, uh, yeah, it was not a welcome, that there was not a welcome return. Um, and I was getting like, now I was just terrified of going on calls absolutely terrified of going on calls. I had gone even just on routine medical calls. I would have such a hard time talking to people, talking to the patients, uh, family, whatever, talking on the radio. I mean, just like stuttering a lot and, and uh, um, I was just terrified, absolutely terrified. And I, I had also, so one of, so what I had found out after I got back, one of the guys, and again, it's like, I don't know why you had to tell me this, but you know, I think you're doing, you know, thought it was the right thing to do. But so like that day or like on the, that Friday, the 26th of October, when, you know, I guess when my wife had called and talked to 
the guys at my work about what was going on. And um, so my, the, the, that one captain, he, uh, that, that cornered me there and on the Saturday morning when I came in, he was working that day and he'd go over to the chief's office and he's like, Hey, you know, Dave's having some real serious problems and he's probably going to need to be gone for a while to go get some help. And, and uh, uh, I, you know, I wasn't in the room, but uh, I've heard from a couple people who pretty, seem pretty good sources. And, and it seems like this is probably something that happened because, uh, I, I think it did get brought to the, the attention of the, uh, or the, the board at one point or commissioners at one point and now uh, but the chief is like, I guess he was kind of pissed off that I was going to have to go take some time off. And, and he's like, you know, I wish that I wish, I wish he would have just pulled the trigger. Jesus. I wish that I wish he would have just pulled the trigger and done us all a favor. And when I heard that, um, I, I was all, you know, it, I'd been back a couple of weeks and like, I knew this is not, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And, and my wife and, 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 uh, everybody was like, yeah, uh, and, and I had a counselor that, that I was seeing here. Um, when they got back who, uh, she had had a lot of experience working with first responders, uh, everybody that was close to me. And then, and like my, my wife and my counselor are telling me like, you're worse, you're worse now than you were before you left. And, and I could feel it. Like I knew that like it was really happening and, and I kept think I kept playing the tape of that phrase over and over and over again in my head. Like, yeah, I wish that motherfucker would have just pulled the trigger. And I just was like, yeah, he's right. Clearly, you know, like I can't do this. And you know, how am I, how am I going to support my family? How am I going to go from this job where I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year and now I'm going to go work at Costco part-time, you know, that's like my best prospect um yeah right so one of the guys that i knew um when i got to deer hollow uh, uh there was one guy that i connected with um there prior to me going to deer hollow there was a guy from another agency who had committed suicide from, uh, you know, he was being, you know, he was off work for job related PTSD and he was actually going to go to the same place I went. And there was a guy there when I got there that I had recognized that maybe we had done some training classes or something together. And, and uh, anyway, talking, we knew a bunch of the same people and he knew this guy that had taken his life and, and kind of like he knew he was coming because they, they kind of were going to be there about the same time. And he just got there a little bit earlier and he was waiting, waiting for him. And, and he was asking me if I knew anything about it. And it's like, yeah, you know, I knew the guy, he was like one of the guys that I 
one of my buddies, he, they were close, close friends. And, and I went to the, the, the funeral, um, uh, the, uh, it was a full fire service line at any duty funeral. And, and, uh, um, you know, it just kind of bonded with this guy over, over that and talking to him about that. And, and uh, anyway, I knew cause he, he left before I did. I knew that cause he had talked about, he was going to file a, an LI claim, a worker's comp claim. And he, it was recommended to him that he talked to this certain attorney that had, had actually previously had worked for the AG's office in, in Washington. He wrote the presumptive, um, PTSD laws. So he's you know, pretty dialed in with that stuff. And so I had that in the back of my mind and it was just like, I, I have to be done. I have to quit this job. Otherwise I'm going to, I've been a Eat a bullet. Absolutely. No doubt about it. I'm, you know, no doubt about it. And I know that I'm worse than when I, before I left. And so I, I went down to the hospital. I was trying to find a, a form to fill out a claim for uh, the labor and industries claim to do to, to a worker's complement. And, uh, the only thing I could find was a, like, just a, you know, like if you hurt your back or something, there's, there's a form you fill out. And so I went down to the hospital and asked for an uh, on-the-job injury form because uh, I knew that that's the only out and down there and talked to the, one of the admitting people that I knew and she gave one to me and I brought it home. Like, there is nowhere in here to, like, I didn't hurt my back or twist an ankle or, you know, tear my shoulder. Like, there's nothing on here for this. Like, this, you know, I filled it out the best that I could. And I was going to send it in, but I was just like, now this, this is not, it's not the application, not even complete. I don't even know what to do. So we called this guy. They said, Hey, did you ever end up filing a I claim? And he said, yeah. And, and I said, how in the world did you even manage to get through that? And he said, well, I, that lawyer that I was telling you about, I, I called him and he took care of it for me. So I called them and, uh, um, they helped me out right away and helped me get, you know, do what I needed to do. And, um, they had a, um, couple of physicians. I had to go see a psychiatrist and, uh, they had a couple of people that they, you know, there was like, I think one, maybe two people in the whole state that even did this and one, and they were both hours, you know, a couple hours away from me. And one guy was in like maybe Vancouver and this other guy was in Olympia. And they said the guy in Olympia, um, he's kind of the only guy that really does this. First of all, like, you know, there's a one guy in Vancouver, but he, it's not really his specialty, but he, he can kind of, you know, he, he can kind of figure it out. But the guy in Olympia, and this was before COVID, he's like, he, they, they said he does, um, video appointments. So the first one you have to do in person a couple hours, but after that, um, you know, like I was going to have to see her multiple times a week, uh, for the first little bit and like, he's just, you know, he does my videos. So perfect. No, that's a no brainer. So I went up, saw him and he, uh, um, 
helped me fill out the, the forms and got all the forms submitted. That was like on a Monday or Tuesday. And by like, by Friday, my claim had been approved hmm. and he took me off work immediately. He's like, you're, you're done taking you off work. You, you know, you're off work for at least a month. And, uh, and then by the time that appointment happened and by the time I had to go back to work, it was like, I had already, my claim had already been approved. So I, I went in, uh, called up, the the captain that was working that day. He was like, Hey, I need, you know, I'm taking off work and uh, I need to go in and let the chief know that I'm going to be gone for at least a month because I've been taken off work and, and I'm probably going to file a new one my claim. And I didn't even know what that meant. I thought that it meant that I'd be off for six months or something while they, you know, I've got more help, but, uh, went into the chief's office and didn't really want to say much. I just said, oh, yeah, I've been taken off work by my doctor and, uh, for at least the next month, I don't really know anything beyond that. Here's the paperwork. And if you have any questions, uh, you can, don't call me, call me attorney. And that was pretty much it. That was the last time I was at work. I was on sick leave for a year after that. Um, you know, the nice thing is, is being there so long, I had enough sick leave that I was able to go to treatment or, you know, be gone for a month and a half. And then in that, uh, be on sick leave for a year after that. And then they didn't have to keep me after a year. So like a year and a day, that was it. I was done. And then, uh, I was still on workers comp, still on that one night. And I was able to, I got to the point where I was able to be retrained. And, uh, they paid for me to go to school and I chose, uh, welding and fabrication and, you know, now I'm retired and got my own welding and fabrication business. How's that going? Oh man, it's, uh, I got what I wished for. <laughs> I got, I'm busy. Yeah. I'm so busy. Like I said earlier, I'm busier now than I ever was when I was working, um, uh, yeah. Describe that hard. busy compared to the fire department busy. Oh man. It's well, first of all, I, I, I walk about 20 feet to, to go to work, but I'm working out of my garage. That's, that's where the electricians are here. I needed, I needed more, uh, needed more power out there to run my welders and stuff. And, and, uh, so I don't have to commute anywhere and, uh, that's nice because, you know, uh, when I was in school, I was going to school Monday through Friday all day and having weekends off. Like how in the world does anybody get anything done? Like you, you're telling me I only have Saturday and Sunday to do <laughs> stuff. Like how that is not possible. That right. can't be done. This is ridiculous. And, uh, um, so now, you know, I, 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 even though I'm busy and I'm working, uh, if I need to take a couple hours to, you know, do something, you know, run an, an errand around the house or, or, you know, for the house, whatever I can and, um, get a little bit more freedom working for myself, but I'm so busy. I get a little bit overwhelmed sometimes. Let's think looking at all of the stuff that I have to do yet that I have yet to do. And, um, but I love it. I absolutely love it. Like I'm getting paid to do something that I would probably, you know, be doing as a hobby anyway. So I, I 
I love making stuff. I mean, I'm, I am the happiest and most content, content when I'm, when I'm making something and that's what I get to do. And I, and I get to do cool stuff, like the stuff that I want to do. So that's work. How are you taking care of yourself outside of that? How are you maintaining mental health, sobriety, all of it? Yeah. I mean, that's a full-time job, basically. That in and of itself, it is a full-time job. And that's, and that's basically until I started school, uh, you know, I was off for a year and a half, maybe, maybe closer to, yeah, maybe a year and a half before I started school. And that was my full-time job. That was absolutely, it, it did take up, you know, a, a full-time schedule to, uh, to do that, to take care of myself. And, um, as far as my sobriety goes, you know, obviously I, I wouldn't say that I got sober when I was in treatment. I definitely was, uh, had abstained. Uh, there was no, I didn't have access to drugs or alcohol while I was in treatment. Um, and, you know, and we went to a lot of different sobriety meetings, whether it was AA or narcotics and animals or, you know, whatever. Um, but that was kind of an afterthought for me. It wasn't until maybe a month in that I was able to, you know, through one of the guys there that I looked up to had been sober for a while. He'd been kind of hitting around at me, <laughs> you know, like, Hey, you know, one of these meetings that we go to where they ask for people to, you know, stand up, and, you know. People that are maybe on their first 30 days of sobriety, I think maybe you should stand up and, you know, let that be known. I'm like, yeah, but I'm not an alcoholic. As a matter of fact, when I get out of here, I'll be able to go back and drink like a normal person now. Because mm. I had a break. But uh, I, I did get sober in, in treatment. I'd, after about 30 days, I, it, it clicked. Like, you know. Cause I used to sit in those meetings and like, man, with all the problems I have, at least I don't, at least I'm not like these guys, at least I'm not one of these sad sons of bitches, you know? <laughs> he kind of looked back on that and laugh. I mean, you're sitting there going, at least I'm not one of those, but uh, wait a second. Yeah, exactly. And I, I am, man. And, and like I said earlier, I was an alcoholic, you know, from birth really. And from the time I took my first drink at a young age and, um, you know, so I, I, that was part of my plan when I got home is, uh, you know, I think I'd only been home a couple of days and the, and, uh, there was a, there's a, a hall here where we have regular meetings and I, I got the schedule and it was like seven o'clock on a Tuesday night, there was a meeting and I got down there and, and I walked in and it was all women. Hmm. Oh, that's weird. And so anyway, I sat down and, and, you know, there was a, a lot of people in there that I knew and obviously that I didn't know that were in the program and, and, uh, they're about to start the meeting. And, and one of the ladies that I knew came over and she's like, you know, this is a women's meeting. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. I said, you know, I just, this is my first meeting since I've been, you know, out of treatment and, and I just saw it was on the schedule. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm really sorry. And they're like, no, we, we talked and we decided you can stay. <laughs> so. I, I stayed and I went back to, uh, another meeting again the next day. And there was a guy there that, you know, old timer that 
been around a long time. He came up to me and introduced himself and he's like, do you have a sponsor? And I was like, no, I'm not really sure, you know, what that's all about. And he's like, well, you got to ask, you know, you got to find somebody that has what you want or you know, they have what you want and you got to ask them. And I said, like, well, okay, would you be my sponsor? It's not having any idea what that meant. And he said, absolutely. You know, and he gave me homework right away and, and, uh, I worked with him going through all of the, the steps and of, of AA and, and, uh, it's become a very, very, very important part of my life. And he told me early on that anything that I put in front of my recovery, whether it's my sobriety or, or my mental health and the outside issues and call, he said, anything you put in front of that you will lose anything that you prioritize over your recovery and your sobriety, you will lose that. So you have to, that has to be the priority in your life, your sobriety and your recovery. I took that seriously. And yeah, so for like that first year and lunch, I that was, multiple AA meetings throughout the week, either in person or over the zone. I really heavily involved in the uh, recovery meetings through the IFF. That's, that's how we introduced here. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the IFF recovery meetings. How, How do those work for you guys? So I think that they had been going on for a couple of months when I had my, when I went to my first meeting and it was actually hosted by, uh, Toronto fire department. Uh, their, their recovery group. It was during COVID, you know, in-person meetings were shut down. And, and, uh, so it was kind of, uh, like there was, there were guys in the, in the union that saw a need, like there's a lot of people in recovery that belong to this union and most, you know, most of the in-person meetings have been shut down and, uh, you know, we got to figure out a way to keep meeting. And so there was a couple of guys that made it happen and, uh, and at that time, I want to say that there was like four or five meetings a week and you just fit the way that I got connected was, um, I don't even remember how I heard about it. I think it was one of the guys that I'd gone to treatment with that had said something about, Hey, have you heard about these ISF meetings? So I, you know, checked them out and just, if you go to the IFF website and their behavioral health section, there'd be a link to attend the meetings. There's one on, uh, every Friday morning, uh, at nine o'clock Pacific. And so noon Eastern. And then, um, on Sundays would be two o'clock my time, five o'clock uh, Eastern where, um, it's just like any other kind of zoom meeting you like you and I are having right now, but it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's like, uh, all union members or for, former members, uh, re- active and retired, uh, that get together to, uh, have a supportive space to, you know, to be in, you know, recovery and sobriety with brothers and sisters in the union. And, and, it, and we embrace all ways, you know, it doesn't have to be AA or, you know, or narcotics anonymous or, or whatever. I mean, there's multiple different pathways to recovery out there and they're all, it's an all inclusive space. So, um, there's one person that hosts the meeting and that is like the chair of the meeting and, and, um, kind of sets the, uh, 
the, the topic for the day and, and kind of, you know, moderates the, the meeting and, um, you know, it might just be like, there's a topic and everybody just kind of talks about how they relate to that topic. And then, uh, could be a speaker meeting where they, you know, we'll have somebody come in that tells their story for like 20, 30 minutes and then, you know, maybe time for discussion afterwards, but then typically the meeting lasts about an hour. And then when the meeting's over that everybody just kind of sticks around and bullshits, hmm. you know, like I've got, uh, you know, like our mutual friend, I, uh, I met him, I've never met him in person, but, uh, I've been in these meetings with him for a couple of years now. And I, you know, I, I watched him get sober in the, in these meetings, you know, there's people that have come in, never having been to a in-person meeting just because of the COVID and, uh, and they've maintain long-term sobriety through the, through these meetings. And like, it's people from all over the United States and Canada and, and, uh, you know, we've got kind of a core group that has been around for a while and here and, you know, lots of newcomers kind of come and go, but it's just a great, great space. Um, you know, we're down, we're down to two meetings a week now, just because the in-person meetings are going again. Right. Attendance has kind of fallen off a little bit, but, um, and it's, I mean, it's, that, that's available to, to anybody in the union, correct? Absolutely. Yep. There's no dues or fees and, uh, there's no membership. You just, you know, if you, if you, if you are a member of the union and, uh, uh, I think we've even had, uh, partners and, and spouses. Um, and if you, you know, we, typically what happens is we'll get people that come in one or two camps. People that are coming in that they've, they've already been in recovery, you know, long-term or they've already been sober or they're, they're, um, you know, they, they kind of have an idea of what they're getting into. They, they've got a little bit of experience in, in sobriety in one form or another and uh, show up that way. Um, and, uh, there's another group of people that are like, Hey, I, I think I have a problem. I don't really know. I feel like I might have a problem where people telling me that I have a problem. I just kind of came here just to kind of see it's like, what do you guys think? You know, do I have a problem? Typically it's like, if you have to ask that question, then yeah, there's an issue. Yeah. <laughs> You're in the right place. You got, you not, you've got a, you've got the right idea. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, like I said, I've seen a lot of people that have they had their lives completely turned around through this program. It is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So you're in recovery, you, you, you're retired, mm -hmm. quote unquote retired. You've, you, you've yeah. been, you've been to school, you've been retrained, you've got a new business. I mean, yeah, things seem pretty good for you right now. Yeah. You know, um, I was talking to, uh, one of the folks that I was in, in treatment with and, uh, and seems like our paths have been kind of, you know, pretty parallel throughout the whole process. And we were talking the other day about how like never in a, never in a million years would I have thought that, that this is where I'd be in life right now. I, I mean, honestly, I didn't think I'd live this long, truly. Right. Um, but man, it, it, like, I 
I always think if I can go back and like, if I would have known everything then that I know now, I've done something different. You know, if I would have known, like if I would have known in high school, how badass it is to, to be a welder and fabricator, you know, what would, would I have done that instead? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I would have, I think I, my path would have been the same, but it just would have hopefully gone differently. Um, but, uh, you know, just because I'm sober and, and just because I, you know, um, they have, uh, you just, cause everything's going well right now. doesn't mean that, you know, life doesn't still happen. Right. But just what it does mean is that I have the tools to be able to deal with them better. Now it's not perfect. I'm not like, I'm not cured. <laughs> I'm not like, uh. I'm not in remission. Um, I still have the same issues, but I just, today I have the tools to be able to deal with them a lot better. And 75% of the time I do pretty good, you know, 25% of the time I can still get kind of derailed and, uh, but the thing is, it doesn't hijack me for days and days at, at a time anymore. I can usually recover pretty quick, you know, now. There's a one, there's a one sentence you ended your narrative with when, when you sent it back to me and it's about, you know, how you start and how you end your days. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a big thing. I mean, the first thing you start your day with is your recovery, correct? Yeah. And, and that's how you, that's the last thing you address at night is what you say is your recovery. So how, how do you do that? How do you start your day with your recovery? How do you finish your day with your recovery? What does that mean? So it's just kind of in the, in the morning, this kind of a timing thing, you know, typically my wife gets up, uh, pretty early to get ready to go to work and, um, you know, she, uh, she's out the door usually by seven thirty. So, and if the, if, if the, you know, um, I've got four kids, um, two of my, my oldest kids, they're, they're older, they're grown, they, they live here with me and. Um, you know, so I don't see them in the mornings, but they've got a couple boys that are still here on, you know, part time at least. And, uh, they're usually in bed if they're here, definitely at that time of morning. So seven thirty, eight o'clock, it's quiet. There's nobody here. Um, then that's when I sit down and the, this is something I never in, in, in my life thought that I would be doing on a daily basis, but I, I, I have come to believe for myself and a higher power and, um, I sit down in the morning's very first thing is I, is I pray to my higher power, you know, it's nothing. I don't ask to win the lottery or, you know, get a, like, oh, I got a job and what a bit on it that I want to really like to get and you know, whatever. I don't, that's not it. What I, I just, I just pray to ask for. Um, you know, the serenity prayer, you know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference that kind of says it all really. Um, and I really think about that, you know, and, and, uh, a lot of times, um, I'll have a, a, like a. AA meeting or something, you know, uh, whether it's the IFF or 
or whatever, um, you know, in the morning, um, or I'll read some kind of recovery literature. And then at night when everybody else kind of, cause I stay up a little bit later than everybody else, or at least I'm, I'm by myself later on the evenings and I'll, and I'll kind of do the same thing in reverse, you know, it just kind of like review my day and like, you know, we're okay. Where, where did I screw up today? You know, what the, what did I say to, you know, it's kind of like taking a personal inventory and be like, all right, what did I, what did I do today? Um, where I, where I need to be better, you know, um, and I'm not always perfect at it. Just cause I have these thoughts doesn't mean that they're always turned into action, but at least I'm thinking about it, you know, and it's kind of one of those things. It's like, you know, you fake it till you make it. And the more that I think about it, the more that I have those thought processes, the more I'm finding that it actually does turn into action more often than these days. And, uh, so yeah, to me, it's really, really important to, to start every day with that quiet time of reflection and prayer and meditation. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, kind of going back over that inventory, you know, do I, is there an area where I need to, you know, continue to work on improving? Um, did I really screw up bad today? Do I owe, do I like really owe somebody an apology? Like, do I really have, do I have to make an amends to somebody maybe first thing in the morning or, or do I just need to make sure that I check myself on certain behaviors and, and just learn to, you know, improve and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a process that we can all do, whether we're in recovery, whether we've been to, to any yeah. kind of therapy or inpatient or, or any of that, it's, it's something that we can all do morning and night is to kind of touch base with ourselves, basically check in with yeah. yourself, make sure where you're at, where you go to bed, check in, see what the day was like. Did I, did I have any major fuck ups along the way? Can yeah, I, can exactly. I, can I, can I correct something or can I talk to somebody the next day and say, Hey, this is what's going on. Yeah. And it's, it's a solid solid piece of advice, whether, like I said, whether you're in recovery or not. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've been going for a while now. So yeah, so we're going on two and a half hours of recording. So let's, well, uh, wow. let's, yeah, let's talk about my I last talk. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can, we can all, well, we, well, you got me, you got me listening. So, uh, let's talk about my last two questions. Um, yeah. I always ask my guests about an everyday carry something you carry each day that you leave home you feel naked without, even though you're not really leaving home to go to work, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm an everyday carry nerd, man. It's like, uh, always kind of be like, I, I always have to think in my mind, it's like a security blanket. I have to be prepared for, you know, at least the minimum amount of whatever might happen. So I always wear shoes that are, that have good soles and that, and that can be laced up. In case I have to run or hike, you know, um, I always have my Leatherman always like that. I've had that same Leatherman for over 20 years and I always have my Leatherman and, and uh, you know, usually a pocket knife. Um, I always have my phone and, uh, and, and I usually wear kind of like super low profile cargo pants. Like they don't really look like cargo pants, but they've got, you know, kind of like tight pockets on the side. So I always have like a little pad of paper 
and a little pen, um, a flashlight, a lighter, and a little uh, fire starter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's like minimum, absolute minimum. You know, keys, wallet, um, and then I, I, you know, carry some other things that uh, uh, I, I've got. I've got my belt that it's like a inside the belt's like a little hidden compartment so you know i've got uh you know just a little bit of cash and um a little saw and like a little cable saw and handcuff keys you know stuff like that in case i ever get kidnapped and <laughs> so you, you, you feel like you're the threat to be kidnapped any any moment well you know there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of jealous husbands out there so <laughs> what about a book my friend what about a book what uh what have you read lately or what stands out to you as something you, you feel like you want to share with an audience? You know, I am listening to some of your other podcasts. This is, uh, this is a question that I, I had had to think about. And then it just, uh, cause I, I, I read a lot and, uh, uh, there, there's so many books that I could recommend, but I have to be honest and say that the, the single the one book that has had the single most influence over me in my life is the, uh, is the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. Um, you know, it's the first 164 pages of the, of the book are, you know, like, like, like we had touched on earlier, uh, you don't have to be in recovery. You don't have to be, uh, in a program of recovery or, or, um, sobriety to, to kind of practice these principles. Um, it is, it is a, it is like a manual. It's like a textbook for life, really. Um, the, the 12 steps and 12 traditions to, uh, uh alcoholic alcoholics and honest, which is my program for sobriety. Like you could easily apply any of those steps and any of those principles to your everyday life. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Well, then we'll, we'll link that in the show notes. Um, one of the things I've been very poor about is keeping up with my show notes. So I need to get my, my ass in gear and focus on some of that stuff. Hey, yeah, David, this has been amazing. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been amazing. It just, you know, it, it, somebody out there is going to need to hear at least something that, that one either you or I had said, and that's what it's all about for me. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm done hiding. And, and done pretending that everything's all hunky dory and uh you know people need to hear people need to hear this because yeah. somebody's related to something i need to reach out to our mutual friend because he's back in the county he's back in my area right I now know. so i gotta reach out to him i haven't seen him since he's been back but uh we, we talked on the phone and, and we, we talked about meeting up and uh, yeah. we need, we need to get, we need to get a lunch and, uh, we'll, once he's out of that EMT class, he has to retake, we'll, we'll grab a lunch. <laughs> yeah. You know, talk about being able to go back in time, knowing everything then that, you know, or, or that, you know, now he gets to do it. He gets to do it. So we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm rooting for yeah. him, obviously. Me too. So, well, sir, go enjoy the rest of your day. I appreciate the conversation. Um, uh, this one will be out pretty soon, so I'll let you know. That sounds good. I appreciate it, brother. It's been been awesome getting to talk to you and getting to know you. Well, stay in touch. Uh, don't be a stranger. Yeah, absolutely. I got your number. You do the same. All right, man. Take care. Take it easy. All right, we're out. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.